forget it, Father. We do rejoice in you. We rejoice in your goodness. We rejoice in your grace and your mercy toward us. We rejoice that you have regarded us with compassion and you have provided a way that we can be transformed from strangers and aliens to you into members of your very own family. That is, that is an awesome thing. There's no God like you who does that. And we praise you and thank you that uh, you do not leave us nor forsake us. No matter what is going on, you are aware of it, and you have planned to use it in ways that we would never have considered possible. You are an infant, a God of infant possibilities, a God of infinite grace and mercy and love. So we praise you, thank you, Jesus' name. Father, this morning we do praise you, knowing that you are, as it's been mentioned, our sovereign and all-powerful and all-wise, knowing best things for us, in Jesus' name. Well, the Book of Romans, last week I introduced it by sharing that in this very detailed theological exposition that Paul writes to the church at Rome, of whom many believers were martyred on that site, Colosseum, very extreme situations, in fact, I don't know what the numbers are, but hundreds of people died on that spot there, not recanting their faith, but being faithful even to death. Paul is writing to that church, in other words, a church that would experience persecution and in fact did. In fact, most of the first century churches experienced that. And in that, he's laying out because I think He wanted to visit Rome. He says that at the introduction. He says it in the conclusion. And he's at the end of his third, what is it, third missionary journey. And it's obvious that he's not going to be able to make it. So the next best thing is to write a letter. And he writes it probably from Corinth before he heads back to the land of Israel. So I take it that he is writing the things that, He would have delivered in person, and this is probably his theology, his teaching. And when he went to a place, obviously it wasn't a one-night stand. It was a time where he would spend extended periods of time. So over the period, I think he summarizes basically his theology here, which in large measure is soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. And in that, he's writing to believers so that they have a better picture of what reality is concerning the nature of man. And I started to say what I introduced last week. I introduced last week that we've looked at some dark passages. In other words, mankind in his sin is depraved. Spent a lot of time on dealing with condemnation. Man is condemned before a holy God. And we've been emphasizing also that there's no way that man can get out of that condition apart from God's way, which is trusting in him, laying our lives out before him, seeking his will, not our will, justification, that's by faith and faith alone. And even that is mixed in with the nature of man, and our nature is we resist that. We want to do something. 
We want to earn it. And the stress is that it's by faith and faith alone. And that runs to the end of chapter 5. So you would expect, as I said last week, that if there's any insecurity for those that have made that act of faith or that commitment to Christ, that this would be the place to discuss that. There would be warnings or there would be things that would uh, be in the text that would tell us, you know, this only lasts so long as long as you're faithful, etc., etc. But you find none of, none of that. In fact, you find the very opposite of that. So just a summary of this section, provision of, of justification, 3, 21 through 26, the priority, 27 through 31, and we completed the pattern a couple of weeks ago, the Old Testament pattern. This is a new doctrine. This isn't something that just came up with Paul. This is all the way to before even Abraham, but Abraham is the prime example. So there's a pattern for justification. And 5, 1 through 11, there's profit from it, not insecurity, or not fear of losing anything. And I think he starts off the chapter with laying out some of the benefits for those that are, in fact, justified. So we're looking at the profit of justification, present benefits, and we didn't get out of verse 1 last time because that's such an important concept. We talked about, first of all, the peace that is available, and we'll continue where we left off. But just to give you an outline of the rest of verse 11 verses there, I've got it outlined kind of in terms of time. We have present benefits as a result of that trust, and we also can expect ongoing tribulation. And this is what the the church at Rome experienced and all of the churches of the first century. And in fact, throughout history, Christians have suffered for their faith, for standing up and proclaiming Jesus Christ as the only way. So you might expect, well, is that a sign that God has rejected the believer? And what he does is just puts it in the context. So those that are justified by faith can expect and should anticipate and have a biblical perspective on suffering and tribulation. We might get into that if uh, we're efficient with our time. Then he's going to talk about the past divine accomplishment, just to kind of reassure the believer in the midst of suffering, we're reminded that we are justified even when we are enemies of God. In fact, in the midst of enemies, and this kind of emphasizes God's love for what God accomplished in justification. Then he talks about future salvation, 9 through 11. Now, he's going to touch on it in verse 2 as well. So there's nothing that gives the believer a sense of insecurity at all. In fact, it's a great comfort for the believer who has, in fact, made a definite commitment to Jesus Christ. So we looked at verses 1 through 2, one sentence. I basically outlined it for you, giving you the high points. So we have the, we have two independent clauses. So that's the essence of it, the heart of it. And on the outline, that's reflected by the outline. We have peace with God. So that was the thing that we focused on last week. Second independent clause, we exult in hope of the glory of God. That looks long range. In other words, it looks at our future hope. 
So the person that is justified and only the person that is justified has that ultimate hope. And the one that's justified, he has peace. And we focused on that. In fact, the unbeliever does not have peace. The unbeliever masks it, oftentimes, tries to cover it up, tries to use external circumstances to deal with that turmoil that is going on inside of them. He is masking it sometimes with all kinds of chemical or whatever, pills or alcohol or whatever, but the unbeliever does not have that peace. It's those having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, first of all, and God does not permit the unbeliever to have that peace until they have that peace with him. So if they don't have that internal quietness, that internal peace that can deal with every circumstance. So, peace with God, we looked at in verse 1, therefore having been justified, past tense, it's participle, but it's past tense, so he's kind of summarizing everything that he's talked about from the 321 all the way to this point, that's been the topic, justification by faith, so for those that have been justified, excluding all those that do not have it, they have peace with God, and then we also said, from that, now God can give us his peace, and we can have the peace of God, ruling in our hearts, as Philippians says, dealing with every circumstance, no matter how severe, whether we even face martyrdom, and the early church were examples of people that in the midst of dying, had God's peace. And it's available to us as well by way of application. So we talked about positional peace, peace with God. That comes the moment we trust in him. And we looked at these scriptures. We won't look them up again. But there's also from that peace what we might describe as experiential. In other words, something that we actually can sense and feel and a reality that uh, we have inwardly. And I think everybody knows what turmoil life is like, or stress, or trouble, whether it's internal or comes from outside, either way. So we can have that experiential peace of God. And that was how we applied the passage last time as well. And we looked at these passages also. So... That peace is through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way to access it. And we only access it through that initial peace by trusting in him. And then we can appropriate it as we experience difficulty or different situations. And we can face whatever comes as a result of appropriating that peace, and it's all through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can mask it, we can cover it up, we can do everything, but it doesn't go away. The only thing that takes that turmoil away is that relationship. So beginning in verse 2, we have, and by the way, in that longer sentence of two verses, in between the two independent clauses is a dependent clause, 
But I think it's so important that on the outline, I included it kind of on the same level as the independent clauses. You see that there? Grace access. So, through whom, now after he mentions Jesus Christ, through whom, everything is through him. In fact, everything in the Christian life is through Christ. Being in Christ, walking in the spirit, as opposed to the old nature or the flesh. So, through him also, so he's adding, not only do we have peace after justification, but we also have obtained our, the American Standard translates it, introduction. That's okay as a translation, but the heart of the word actually has the idea of access. In fact, it doesn't occur frequently in the New Testament, three times actually. Here's one of them. And elsewhere it's translated access. Access to. Well, uh, we'll expand that. We have obtained our access by faith, now this is ongoing faith, into, this is what it's talking about, into this grace. The grace that begins with justification, it's by grace, through faith, we just have an introduction. And I think the idea here is okay to translate it that way, but keep in mind that behind the word is the idea of access. In other words, we have a new access that we never had before. In other words, the unbeliever does not have access to God in reality. They might pray, they might think they do, but in reality they do not. It does not come until justification. We have access. Now, in the first century, it was very, very clear, particularly amongst Jewish people, but Gentiles were also aware, because Judaism was very visible, particularly in Israel, And most people understood that you didn't access God apart from several things. In other words, you had to have several things in order. And most people didn't even have direct access to the manifestation of God's presence. When God manifested himself amongst the children of Israel, and by the way, even in the first century, that glory was not in in the temple, that glory left with the Babylonian captivity for that. But in that context, Jews, probably more by memory, obeyed all the stipulations of the Mosaic law in terms of accessing God, even though the glory was not manifested in the first century, but later on in the Solomonic era and after that until the spirit left, until basically God abandoned Israel, you did not have direct access to God. You, it was always mediated. It was mediated by a priest, the priesthood. But we have obtained that. So this access in the Old Testament was through the sacrificial system. What this emphasized is you can't stand before a holy God unless sin is dealt with. Sin was dealt with in the Old Testament through the sacrificial system. What is the consequence or the penalty of sin? Death. Death. So all mankind cannot access God apart from dying, paying the penalty. But if you die, then you can't access God because you're gone. So God provided a system, a substitute. 
And this started in the garden, if you remember. God is the one that offered the first sacrifice. An animal was a substitute. So the sacrificial system under Judaism, the only way to access God was through that sacrificial system. Mary Lee? I was going to say, it is a worldwide known fact that someone has to pay. Someone has to pay the penalty of sin. Right. Or, anywhere you go. Or the breaking of law, exactly. Anywhere you go, somebody has mm-hmm. to pay. So access was limited, and I reviewed very quickly last time, Gentiles could not go any closer to the manifestation of God, which was in the Holy of Holies of the temple. Gentiles could no, no further than the court of the Gentiles. They could not go beyond that. This is the way God set it up. Now, they could have a relationship with God, but they could not access that presence, if you will. And even women could only go the next stage, the court of the women, which was even closer. Now, this is Jewish women, obviously. And even the priests themselves, could they go in the presence of the presence of God? No. No, they could only go into what's called that entryway or that first part of the temple or even before that the tabernacle called the holy place and then beyond the holy place was another room called the holy of holies where God manifested his presence and it appears from the description of the old testament it was a visible manifestation of light or glory or some visible way God manifested his presence Now, he's not contained, even Solomon recognized that, in that Holy of Holies, because he's omnipresent, he's everywhere. And he was everywhere in Israel, but he chose to manifest that presence in the Holy of Holies. The high priest wants him here to go into the most. Let's put that on the slide here. Exactly. Only the high priest, and only once a year, and only making special sacrifice for himself could enter the Holy of Holies. So access was limited. And what this is to convey, God set this up to convey, you just don't approach God apart from his means. In other words, the way that he has set up. Isn't that coming up? Rosh Hashanah, the new year now. Yom Kippur, yep. Right, but there's no temple either today. Yeah, very good. So only one person once a year could enter into the immediate presence of at least the manifestation of God. Okay? And they always tied a rope around his ankle and played in case God killed him, they could get the body out. Yeah. Nobody else could go in. That's right. Because if he if he if he had a bad thought, if he sinned in some way, he he would be immediately extinguished. So it's limited. But in the New Testament, because Christ is the ultimate sacrifice, all of the Old Testament sacrificial system are portrayals or prefiguring of the ultimate sacrifice. That ultimate sacrifice is actually hinted at all the way in the garden itself when God pronounced a prophecy in Genesis 3.15. And the rest of the Old Testament develops and refines the concept that Messiah would come 
and Isaiah 53, Messiah would die on the cross. So that's access. And the New Testament, we enter the presence of the Father through that sacrifice, through Jesus Christ, based on the blood shed on the cross, his death. So we don't appreciate that because the book of Hebrews says we can boldly, in other words, we can come in the immediate presence of God if you are justified. Now, the unbeliever is still an enemy and still maybe in his imagination can come into the presence, but in reality does not until he comes through Jesus Christ in the way that he set it up. So this is a tremendous privilege. And what the writer is telling us is that this is just an introduction or this is just access now that is available to the believer as a result of justification. We have access into the immediate presence of God. There's no holy place. In fact, this passage doesn't say it, but Ephesians 1, for example, talks about the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The believer is now the temple of the Holy Spirit, in the Holy of Holies. So we not only have access, but we have God's presence. Tremendous thought that Old Testament saints didn't have access to. It's all based on what Christ has done. And there's other passages that emphasize that. Let's take a look at some of them. Yeah, somebody look up those. Who's got Ephesians 2.18? I think 2.18 and 3.12 are the only other places where it has access. The word access. The, the same Greek word that we have here. Dwayne, you got that one? Connie, you got... Well, I'll let Dwayne look up the two Ephesians passage. Connie, look up the Hebrews 4. And I'll let you also look up the Hebrews 10. So, Dwayne, look up 2.18. Go ahead and read it loud. For through him, both have access. Through him, who's the him? Is it capitalized? Yep. Who's the him? Prior verse, through Christ. Go ahead. From one spirit to the Father. We have access. Get the word access. And then 3.12. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Through him, again, very similar, bold access. Same word that we have here in the Romans passage. And then Hebrews doesn't use the word, but it has the same concept. Connie? Let us therefore come boldly to all grace that we may have mercy and find grace unto you. We can come boldly into the throne of grace, the immediate access. We take it for granted. We don't think about it. But if you think back, this is a tremendous privilege to those that are justified. you got 10, 19, and 20. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by the new... To enter the holiest. Now, he's talking New Testament. He's not talking about the Solomonic or the Herodian temple here. He's talking about the immediate presence of God that has been opened up. Remember, the veil was torn. That was the veil that allowed the high priest to enter the Holy of Holies. That veil was torn. We can enter in now. Go ahead. Read it again. By a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is flesh. That is his flesh. And again, he, the he there, is through what Christ has accomplished. So the presence, we have obtained our access by the same faith, into this grace, and this is an introduction, you might say, the first 
taste of grace is when we receive it the moment we have trusted in him. Into this grace, let's look at charis, grace, Greek word. And uh, we could look at many passages that speak of grace and salvation, the Romans passage we've been dealing with. We won't look up Ephesians, but there's a cluster of several things that God... Well, let's look it up since we're in Ephesians. Dwayne, you're there. Why don't you uh, go back to chapter 1 and and let's look at some other passages here. We have grace and suffering, by the way. And the reason I throw that in is because we're going to look at that after we get after get done with verse 2. Who wants to do First Peter? Want to do that one? First Peter 2, 19 and 20. We have an enabling grace. These are things that the believer has. Romans 6, 1, that's an easy one. Terry, go ahead and get that one. And we'll talk about Romans 12, 6. In fact, Terry, why don't you get both of those that are in Romans? Let's read Ephesians 1 and notice how all of these things, we praise it because the implication at the end is that they're by grace. And we have the word charis there. Dwayne, you got it? For yes, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Election, you could say, eventually will be in this package of grace, chosen before the foundations of the world. Keep going. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That choosing has an ultimate end, an ultimate holiness. And what else is there? Having predestined us to be adoption. Adopted. Mm-hmm. By Jesus Christ. Adoption, predestination. Keep reading. These are all part of a grace package, you might say. According to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in love. Okay. <laughs> so he concludes it by praising his grace. In other words, he's mentioned things that we have, those that are justified, and it's by grace. We have special enablement in the midst of suffering or in the midst of just ordinary living. First Peter 2, 19 through 20. Bob, you got that one. For this finds favor. If or By the way, that's grace. This finds grace. Charis. If for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, for what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it and patiently endure it, this finds favor. This finds grace. In other words, in the midst of suffering... Grace is available to not only endure it, but to have right attitudes with it. So in the midst of that, and there are several others, some of them, many of them in First Peter, by the way, but other passages, this is kind of a striking one where charis is in the context. Uh, living, just living in general. In fact, this starts, chapter 6 begins all the way through chapter 8, that whole section that deals with living out the Christian life, the product or the result of justification by faith. Now we live, but it's also living by grace. Terry. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? So that grace, in other words, that initial grace may increase? No. Go ahead. In fact, uh, he says absolutely not. 
or are you crazy? You could translate it. It's a loose translation. Go ahead. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. No, no, no. Did, did, was that the end of verse? No, may it never be. Verse one. Read verse 2 is what he wants you to do. Yeah, keep reading. I'll keep reading. Sorry about that. By no means. We died to sin. How can we live live any longer? Okay, we died to it. And the rest is going to be an exposition of living in grace as opposed to living in the flesh. He's going to explain that. Now skip to verse 12. In terms of ministry and gifts, anything that we do for the Lord in the area of ministry begins with spiritual gifts. And spiritual gifts are by grace. Got that one, Terry? Okay. Well, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. Again, the man's gift is prophesying and use it in proportion to his faith. And Ephesians 4 7, that begins an exposition on spiritual gifts, says, But to each one of us, grace. So gifts in themselves take the word charis, take the idea of grace. Undeserved. Nothing that we do to earn. Undeserved. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift in accordance with what he did, which is eternal payment for sin. So the idea of spiritual gifts, and there's many passages that include the idea of ministry, uh, wisdom in ministry or wisdom in living, Wisdom in dealing with situations, 2 Corinthians 1.12, who wants to do that one? And then there's power, there's grace where power is needed, and that's in a apostolic passage, but I think there's a principle there that we can apply to us as well. 2 Corinthians, you got it, Linda? Yeah. Who's got Acts 4, Mary Lee? So 2 Corinthians 1.12. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially toward you. Not in fleshly wisdom. In other words, we've lived out into the world, not according to the wisdom that men have, which is foolishness to God, he says in First Corinthians, but, passage says, by grace. So we live out the Christian life in wisdom, not by human wisdom, but God's wisdom, which is by grace. And then there's power available, and this is miraculous power, and in some cases God can grant that to us as well. 433. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Great grace takes power to deliver the gospel. And in that context... Because of the situation, miracles accompanied it as well. So grace that has power available. And there's ultimate, which we're going to get to next, there's ultimate grace, which is the Bible uses a theological term. Paul uses it. So I'll use it here, glorification. It's not in First Peter 1, three, but it looks ahead to that time. Somebody want to do that one? Connie, do you want to do that one? First Peter 1... 13, this looks beyond this life here and now, and we have a hope of what the Bible describes as glorification. Therefore, gird up the lines of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. 
Okay, so focus on that grace that's going to be brought to you when? At the revelation, that's when he appears and every eye shall see him. And we will be there. That's glorification. That's by grace as well. It's kind of a summary of this introduction that we have to this grace. It has application to us here and now, but it only comes to those that are justified by faith. Having been justified by faith, through him we have this introduction. Then we have the last little phrase here, in which we stand, in other words, and by the way, that's in the perfect tense. But if it's in the perfect tense, it means that something took place in the past, and I think it's referring to justification, but it has ongoing and sometimes permanent outworking or permanent results. And when it says we stand in it, in other words, we are stable in it, we are set in it, we cannot lose it, if you will. Here's one of those assurance words that is in the passage, in which we stand. It's in a perfect tense. Standing in grace, so we stand in it. Now, we can revert to the flesh and live as if we did not have justification, because we have two natures. But the encouragement is, if you stand in grace, then you can live differently. The gospel, we stand in it. We stand in what God has already done, 1 Corinthians 15.1. Further grace, 1 Peter 5.12. We stand in that grace. We stand in God's strength, Ephesians 6.11-14. We stand in God's will, Colossians 4. Well, and I'm just giving you a few passages where the word istemi, which is the word Greek word to stand, very common. It's used in a normal, everyday sense to just stand up like I am here, standing up in front of you. But it's also used in a theological, spiritual sense in these passages here. It's a position. In other words, where we stand, this is a permanent thing, past tense with ongoing results. Somebody look up 15.1, and the other one, uh, Mary Lee's got that one, First Peter 5, Dwayne, Ephesians 6, Connie, you twitched. I twitched. Colossians 4.12, Karen. First Corinthians 15.1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, that the gospel I preached to you, to you which you received, in which you stand. In which you stand. And by which you are being saved. Okay, now he's looking at this ongoing salvation from the ongoing presence of sin. But we stand in that gospel. First Peter 5.12 By Salvinus, our faithful brother, as I considered him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that, that, that this is the true grace of, grace of God in which you stand. This is the true grace of God in which... He's writing to believers in Second Peter in which you stand. We stand in this grace that we have just received an introduction to. Ephesians 6. Now, this is in the midst of spiritual battle. Who's got it? Connie? Put the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. That you may be able to stand. If you don't have the armor, you're not going to stand. Against the wiles of the devil. 
But we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in it. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Three times the word stand is in there. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And then he goes on and describes the armor. We stand in God's strength and only in that. We can stand in his will. In other words, we can claim those promises concerning his will. We can stand in them. It's got it. Always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the wills. Okay, that you may stand in the will of God, perfect in the will of God. We can stand in future glory. We won't look that one up for the sake of time, but you can write down Jude 24. In other words, our future is secure if you are justified by faith. And then the verse ends with the third element in it, second independent clause. We can exalt in hope of the glory of God. This exalting, we can rejoice in it, we can even boast in it. In other words, we can be exuberant about it, you could even say. We can exalt in our future is secure. There's nothing insecure here in terms of justification by faith. This looks at the end product, the glory of God. That's glorification again. And Paul's going to expand on glorification in chapter 8. He's going to talk more about it. That's the end product. That's that's where we are headed. We won't see it in this life because we still have the old nature. Glorification includes removal from these sinful bodies and the full impact of his salvation applied to our new nature. Right now our new nature is sometimes undeveloped and be in its fullness. That doesn't happen until we go to be with the Lord, whether through death or through his coming. So, we exalt, we, and it goes all the way back, having been justified by faith, this is only available to those that know him. We have a secure future, and it's a glorious future. Does that make sense? And there's lots of passages, I didn't put them on the slide, let me read some of them to you. To speak of that future glory. Colossians 1.27, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of his glory, of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, and the hope of glory. So it's a future hope of glory that has begun already in us. Philippians 3.21, who will transform the body of our humble state, in other words, who we are right now in our humanity, into conformity with the body of his glory. We will be like Christ, glorified Christ. Conformity with the the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. In other words, his omnipotent power. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, second coming, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. That's glorification. When we get to Romans 8, Romans 8, 17 and 18, 
And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. And then verse 18, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's glorification. And you can include 2 Corinthians 3, 18, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, 1 Peter 4, 13, 1 Peter 5, 4. They all deal with this future glory of God. 1 Peter 4, 13. You could also include 5, 1. I didn't mention it, but 5, 1, and then 5, 4. And you can include 5, 10. And there's others as well. And in the Romans passage... Those that have been justified by faith, we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And we do that now, we can exalt, because we have it as a possession. In fact, we stand in it. We don't experience it until we go to be with Great assurance. The point here, I think what Paul is saying, is it begins with justification, a right relationship, where we have immediate peace, And it works itself out all the way through the Christian life. And then in verse 3, he's going to talk about the suffering that we will experience in in the Christian life. But it ends ultimately in a future glory beyond this life. Great security here. So justification by grace alone is only the beginning of abundant grace that extends throughout this lifetime into even eternity itself. Bill, why don't you close for us? Father God, we are just overwhelmed by the bread We are just amazed at how incredibly extensive that is. Thank you for these promises that you have put throughout Romans and Ephesians, first and second Peter. Thank you for these. May they sink deep. We leave here today different people than we because of the ministry of your word. Send us out now into a very great world to share the good news. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.